Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is cartoonist, publisher, art agent, uh, state manager, but today mostly cartoonist, Dennis Kitchen. Uh, the new uh, art book, uh, retrospective, oddly compelling art, the oddly compelling art of Dennis Kitchen, as well as you recently had the Harvey Kurtzman book, which you joined us on, I guess that was last summer, wasn't it? Yes. And... Uh, kind of, uh, I almost feel like it's a bit of a companion piece to your new book, The Underground Classics. <laughs> well, maybe. Because, it, it, I mean, it 
discusses a lot of the the same era and takes a look at the other people's work while sure. the the new art book is your artwork and but it's funny because the essay I feel like it's it's a lot it's a lot about your work um, with publishing and all that but also includes a lot of touching on all the folks you're involved with and yeah I yeah I, I I think that was what Dark Horse and John Lynn the designer and Charles Brownstein the essayist and I discussed and uh, yeah I, I hope uh, I hope you thought it was a good mix <laughs> it was um, I'm personally would like to see more kind of get a better idea of you as a cartoonist and that's kind of <laughs> the advantage of being able to, to do an interview I guess is to kind yeah. of talk well, about that maybe uh, maybe that'll be separate at some point so. <laughs> it's funny I almost feel like you're uh, in some ways not entirely comfortable with the identity as a cartoonist well you know I wear so damn many hats it's a problem and uh, early on I was convinced I was going to be a cartoonist but I had this uh, for better or worse, I had this uh, business sense uh, that it seemed most cartoonists didn't have. And so uh, when I self-published successfully back in the late 60s, it led to opportunities that I took advantage of. Um, and at each juncture, when the business then grew, I kept rationalizing that uh, I'd, I'd still have plenty of time to draw. Well, it didn't work out that way. And, at some point, the drawing became less and less. The business took over, and then I would just sporadically do things, uh, usually when another editor would twist my arm. And So that's the way it evolved, and uh, it's not the way uh, I planned it, but then, you know, I don't think we plan our lives uh, necessarily in a way, in a way that <laughs> follows the script, you know? No. I don't necessarily uh, regret what happened, um, I just think uh, uh, I, I took advantage of opportunities that in some ways were uh, financially attractive when I knew that cartooning, for most cartoonists, at least back in the underground days, was a, a, a pretty much a starving proposition. Mm -hmm. By being a publisher, and even though not a particularly successful one, it was a more stable lifestyle. And it allowed me to be creative in a different way. Kind of, the, I think the way I rationalized it back then was instead of starring in a movie, I was directing a movie or producing a movie and could still have a creative influence without uh, necessarily having that, that brush in my hand 24-7. Was it, do you find that the kitchen sink crop um, was kind of a almost curated line that specifically reflected your interests, or was there a market intention I'm not sure I, I understood that. And maybe you need to turn up your volume a little bit. Okay. I was uh, wondering whether or not the um, the work you were publishing, especially in the 70s, uh, um, was kind of a... You're talking about the creativity of publishing. Was it really a, a curated reflection of your interest as a publisher, or were there projects you take on as a kind of, you know, this is good to make money with? Yeah, well, certainly there were occasionally things that I just thought were, were going to make money, but by and large, I followed my own tastes, for better or worse. I think uh, uh, my gut instinct uh, was either I really like this artist or I, I, I'd like to do a comic on this subject and I'll invite the following artists. Um, 
and uh, followed my own muse. And I think I felt confident enough that I was in touch with the, the hippie market that I knew what would sell and uh, could take chances. I um, did a lot of anthologies. We thought I, I thought I could mix up some of the new guys I liked with some of the more established uh, known names and... Uh, you know, tried to mix up the genres. I had a, a humor genre, snarf, bizarre sex, dope comics. Just those are both self-explanatory. <laughs> uh, Death Rattle was a horror anthology, and then a lot of one shots. And you know, if mm. if uh, if Robert Grum offered me his next book, I certainly uh, w- would take it. But that, would, that didn't require uh, any real editing. Um, and occasionally, I would tap other people to put together books like Jay Lynch, Assembled Bijou, and uh, the first Shangri-La, things like that. So it was, um, you know, it, it's hard to explain because uh, it was um, it was all happening so fast back then. I don't think I uh, really sat down and had a, a one-year plan, much less a five-year plan. <laughs> um, Got to remember, we didn't know if the revolution was around the corner. One thing I found really interesting is that you are younger than the majority of your contemporaries. A little bit so, yeah. Younger than, like, Crum and Trina and Spain and some of these fellows. But I think, you know, we're all basically born in the 40s, some in the early 40s, some in the late 40s. Mm -hmm. So we were all coming of age, you know, sometime in the mid-60s, late-60s, and that's how it coalesced. But, uh, yeah, I'm slightly younger. some of my contemporaries are already collecting social security checks. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I find, I'm looking at your work, and I do feel like there's a different, and maybe it's also because where you were located geographically, where your style isn't necessarily as meshed in with the others. Like, it's very stylistically different. I'd say probably the most similar maybe would be Jay Lynch. Uh, well, yeah, he had a... Probably a yeah, kind of a painstaking, uh, very deliberate style too. <laughs> I don't, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure if that's age or that's a region or, I mean, you got to remember the underground cartoonists prided themselves on a on on, on developing idiosyncratic uh, styles. Mm-hmm. We rebelled against the idea of a house style that Marvel and DC obviously urged, and. Uh, even to the degree that the the lettering was sometimes not uh, perfect was part of that distinct look and as long as it was legible we thought that was uh, that was your distinctive look uh, so obviously all of us are influenced in one way or another stuff mm-hmm. we grew up with and and, and enjoyed but um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what to say beyond that <laughs> well I'm curious um when you started publishing your first um, self-published comics, the Mums, oh, yeah, Mums homemade comics, Mums homemade, I was, um, how much were you in touch with any other underground folks? None. Yeah, that was done completely in a vacuum. Um, I think while I was working on it, I found a copy of Bijou Number One for sale in a used bookstore in Milwaukee, and I picked it up and. I recognized Crumb because he had been in Help magazine, mm-hmm. Harvey Kurtzman's mag. And I recognized Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson because they had contributed little gag panels to Help. 
um, and I was uh, curious that it was uh, published in uh, Chicago, so I, I did write to them. But by the time my comic came out, self-published, and, and I got in touch with Jay and those guys, um, I found out I had joined a very tiny community. According to Jay, I think he said Moms was the eighth underground comic. He had actually been counting. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how small it was. And then suddenly I became aware, um, gosh, there's a zap in San Francisco and Radical America, um, which ironically had come out of Madison, Wisconsin, but I was... Uh, uh, it seemed a world away. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, 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 again, it's hard to describe. you got to remember, this was kind of a spontaneous movement. Nobody organized it. There were little pockets, and San Francisco is certainly the place everyone regards as the mecca of the uh, whole counterculture, including the comics industry. But there was a strong mm. Midwest presence that just sprang up on its own, and stubbornly stayed there when uh, most of the players eventually migrated to San Francisco or Berkeley, at least temporarily. There was very little presence in New York or other major cities. Uh, Until the uh, East Village Other? Um, what's that? Until the East Village Other? Yeah, and, and again, there were a handful there, but most of the people there, like Kim Deitch and Trina in Spain, uh, uh, migrated westward. Mm -hmm. So that was actually a very short experience. Uh, Spiegelman, too, you know, was some of these people were native New Yorkers, but they didn't stick around. No. So for its size, it had a relatively small uh, impact, whereas Chicago, Milwaukee, Madison, uh, disproportionately were putting things out. And it's not that I had anything against San Francisco. I, I went out and visited my friends, and I thought it was a great place to visit. I just couldn't imagine. Uh, relocating there for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, partly was the incestuous politics of of, uh, of the undergrounds. I, I, it was my experience that if you got too close to a lot of the people you're working with, and there were literally affairs left and right, people cheating on each other, and uh, it was not a to me a healthy environment. Um, by being kind of an outpost in the middle of the country. People would send things to me, and it was uncomplicated. I wasn't uh, sleeping with the girlfriend, you know. I wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't getting drunk or high at parties, for better or worse. I was a, a, a more neutral. Yeah. And the more I heard uh, about the stuff that was going on out there, honestly, I, I just thought it was a smart decision. Plus, I always rationalized the rent was much cheaper in the Midwest, and. Uh, and to some extent took a perverse pride in being able to do it there. It would it'd be like being in Vancouver, for example. It's like, well, Vancouver's a cool place. Why do I have to move to San Francisco to prove I'm hip? I can yeah. be just as hip in Vancouver. And people like Rand Holmes and George Metzger and a few others, uh, you know, mm -hmm. made that Marv Newland. choice. Um, it, it's funny you talk about the politics because, I mean, you really ignited a bit of... Uh, internal political fury um, seen political fury with comics book um, doing the, the project with Marvel I remember yeah. I when I asked him about it he told me that there was this uh, meeting that they had that I guess like Griffith and some other folks pulled together yeah. in response to it I'm really fascinated about that because it's not really discussed very much no. but it really was uh, a moment of like of split 
Um, yeah, it, it's actually very interesting. Um, what happened was Stan Lee had been recruiting me for quite a while. We, we had become odd pen pals in a way in the early 70s, and uh, once or twice a year he'd call me and try to convince me to come and work for Marvel, which I, I really wasn't interested in doing. But in 1973, the underground comics experienced uh, what we call uh, the crash of 73. It was a combination of a, a glut in the marketplace and also the Supreme Court ruling that uh, pretty much allowed individual communities in America to determine what was obscene or not. And that made a lot of head shops, our primary outlets, uh, run scared, and they, they didn't want to carry undergrounds anymore. And so in that environment, when we were seeing sales plummet, a stand happened to call, and suddenly I realized uh, the very survival of my company was at stake and my own livelihood and my uh, uh, my wife at the time was pregnant, and I, I, I decided, okay, I'm going to listen to Stan. And what he proposed was a what we ended up calling a hybrid magazine that combined uh, underground sensibilities with uh, basically a newsstand distribution. It had to be watered down a bit, but to the degree to which uh, we could compromise, we, we we kept debating. But I. I uh, what I saw was a chance to basically go back to my starving cohorts and, and offer them four times the rate that the underground publishers had been able to offer up front. And most of them jumped at it, certainly including Kim Deitch and mm -hmm. Justin Green and uh, Trina and uh, S. Clay Wilson and uh, Skip Williamson got on the list. A lot of people jumped on it. But at the same time, Marvel uh, wouldn't allow... Uh, certain four-letter words, they wouldn't allow full frontal nudity. There were things that we had taken for granted that suddenly, um, obviously, Marvel couldn't allow. Keep in mind, Marvel's name wasn't even on this. Uh, Stan's name was, but Marvel itself kept mm. the distance. It was the magazine sure. company? Uh, it had no brand name on it at all. Uh, it was kind of an orphan. And uh, what happened was uh, some of the people initially like Bill Griffith and Spiegelman, uh, agreed to contribute, but they chafed under the notion of it being Marvel, and uh, and they had very different ideas of what such a magazine would be. They were much more, I would say, purists. They thought I had sold out effectively. And, uh, I mean, to be honest, I, I did. I compromised because it was a survival choice. They decided they would put out a pure magazine, go back to the print mint, and... Uh, and they put out a wonderful magazine called Arcade, um, which I think is great. I even contributed to it myself. Um, so it created a certain schism in a way, but you have to understand that a lot of the people uh, we're talking about appeared in both magazines. So mm. uh, you had the more purest underground magazine coexisting with the, the one that was on newsstands, and uh, Marvel printed about 200,000 copies of comics books, so it got pretty wide exposure, whereas Arcade was distributed through the print mint, and it probably saw sales more like 20,000, 30,000, I would imagine. Um, the one person they were able to attract that I couldn't was Robert Crumb, because mm -hmm. Crumb would never work for Marvel under any circumstances, and I think Jay Lynch was the other. And except for those two... Um, Basically, we had a shared uh, contributor list. <laughs> uh, 
Kim described the uh, a meeting with uh, Robert Crumb cheering him on as they, uh, you know, discussed it and complained about it, and even in himself, because of the high level of animosity coming from it, wanted to just stop comics for a while and for I guess for a couple months, didn't make comics and realized how silly it was and. Yeah, you know what it was? It was a moment of truth. For you got to remember, guys now probably in their mid-20s, some of whom are getting married, starting their families, and it was like, can we make a living doing underground comics? Mm -hmm. Because um, especially in 73 when uh, the, the market was extremely unstable, there were some people who wanted to, to buy a home. I remember Trina Robbins and Leslie Gabarga were living together, and they, they wanted to buy this home in San Francisco. They couldn't do it with the money they were making. So the money they got from Marvel allowed them to buy a house that's now probably worth a million dollars. Trina's so, probably still in it, so, isn't she? Yeah, people had to make very <laughs> practical choices. And yeah. I completely, completely understood why Crum uh, wouldn't work for Stan Lee. That mm. would have been oil and water. Um, I I made a practical decision, uh, for better or worse. Did the best I could with a hand tied behind my back, and it only lasted about five issues. But it also, in many ways, uh, had a big impact on the comic book industry because uh, it was impossible to keep secret that Marvel was compromising. Mm-hmm. For example, they would return the original art to us, which they never did with any other book. I kept beating Stan up over the copyrights till he finally caved in and said, okay, the artists could keep their copyrights. And you got to remember, things like that were unprecedented for Marvel. And so when the old-timers, um, uh, Lee Mars told me she was in the bullpen when she heard old-timers basically saying to Stan and his left-hand guy, Saul Brodsky, they, they were saying, why are you giving these hippies all these special deals and not us? And it's like, Stan had to shut it down. That's why he pulled a plug on it uh, after the fifth issue, and uh, uh, the the official excuse was it wasn't selling well enough. But I'm I'm convinced the real reason is uh, it it was a Pandora's box uh, that had been opened. Yeah. And so uh, it was never quite the same. As you know now, uh, people who work for Marvel and DC have much uh, more square deals. They certainly get their art back now. Uh, they they can. Uh, have things with friendlier creator contracts, uh, with residuals and so on. Things that were not even negotiable back in 73. Well, even with Marvel, it's still miles to come in comparison with DC. It is, it is, but they still come a long way from what it was then, when it was basically work for hire and shut up. Yeah. And so, um, I'm I'm glad in many respects I did it, but it was basically an experiment that lasted a little over a year. And by then, the market had stabilized. By working for Stan, uh, it meant I didn't have to pull any money out of my own company. So Kitchen Sink survived. And so by 1974, 75, I was back doing what I had always done, and I never worked for Stan again. Um, It was an experiment for for what it's worth, good (laughs) and bad. And... uh, I still, I think it's amusing in many ways, um, the, the effects it had, a certain ripple effect. Um, and, and the biggest irony to me is Marvel basically saved an underground comic company that went on to produce work for another you know, 15 or 20 years. It, it's definitely, I see it as a touchstone moment kind of within comics where you have, you know, 
different types of seminal works and really showing a change because to me it's also kind of marks the end of the underground era. Yeah, you know, people ask me fairly often where you draw that timeline. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you could make that argument. At the same time, there were Like, uh, I don't titles. see it as ending the underground era, but yeah. I see it as, I mean, it was a time where you had just a ridiculous amount of stuff coming out that yeah. with very little, you know, of it being of high-quality caliber, you know. Well, I mean, I, I guess I debate with you on that. I think there was still some pretty good stuff coming out in the late seventies, even up to nineteen eighty or so. I'll agree, there was lots of great yeah. stuff, but I'm also saying there's lots of lots of crap coming out too. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah. But you got to remember, um, <laughs> it was the nature of the beast, yeah. and there were a lot of small publishers. There were a lot of self-published people. There were people who were uh, uh, deliberately imitating Crumb just to try to take advantage of. Uh, naive readers who couldn't tell the difference. Uh, there was a company out of Chicago that literally uh, was putting out uh, imitations, bad imitations of Crumb, and uh, uh, they, uh, I think they were published by one of the main uh, head distributors. So if you had a head shop, these things were pushed on you, and you put them on the racks right next to the other stuff. And uh, you yeah, remember, some retailers couldn't tell the difference. Some were fans and had a sense of taste, some were just moving product the same way they'd have zigzags next to, you know, another <laughs> brand. and It was just product. Yeah. Um, the the shops we really liked, of course, were the ones who uh, who had a, 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 a personal passion for the comics and would rack them very prominently and would push the best ones. And there were quite a few of those. And I, and I think a lot of those shops ended up becoming comic shops because it was all part of that gradual transition as head shops were pretty much driven out of business um, by uh, local ordinances restricting uh, the sale of drug paraphernalia and such. But for a while, uh, that was a very strong distribution system, and we were able to sell uh, pretty stunning numbers of comics, uh, numbers that a lot of uh, self-published artists or or small publishers would would love to have today, you know. Um, There wasn't any comic back then. We couldn't sell at least 10,000 of the weakest, and the best ones would sell 50,000, 70,000, more than 100,000. Just reprint, 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 because it was an almost uh, insatiable market of, uh, you know, uh, freaks, heads, Hippies, whatever term you want to use. Was it something like 400,000 homegrown funnies? No, not quite that many, but it was pushing a couple hundred thousand. Okay. Um, the Freak Brothers collectively had passed a million at one point. Uh, I think we lost track, but Ripoff <laughs> could tell you. That was by far the the best-selling of all. Um, I think that, that single title sustained uh, Ripoff uh, for years. So... Uh, you got to remember, there was a, a built-in audience for us. If, 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 if back in the 70s you had long hair, beard, mustache, I mean, I assumed you were a customer. And <laughs> uh, you would go back to your, your pad, your, your dorm room, wherever you lived, and uh, it was pretty certain you'd light up a joint and you'd uh, either read, you know, Underground Comics or, you know, High Times or Rolling Stone. There, there weren't that many publications aimed at that audience and so comics were um, 
uh, unique in the sense that they were geared very specifically for a, a generation, a, a slice of the population, and we could reach them with perfect target precision <laughs> through head chops. And uh, uh, it, it, it's never been the same since. I mean, if uh, you look at the comic shops today, it's a very different situation where, you know, the the bulk of them make their living selling superhero comics to an audience ranging from, you know, uh, aging boomers who still like the superhero comics to kids, everything in between, and mm -hmm. then you've got, if you're lucky, a shop that carries some of the indie titles and the offbeat things, but it's there's so much product now, um, you can't... Uh, it's a mess. I can't even imagine how different it is uh, uh, marketing them. Back then, I, I didn't uh, I didn't worry about outfits like Diamond. They didn't even exist. I uh, I had a few head distributors. I'd call them. I'd tell them I had a new book at press. They might ask what artist was in it, and they'd say, you know, send me a thousand, send me five thousand, whatever, because they were confident whatever it was they could sell. Mm -hmm. If it really sold fast, they'd come back and order more, and they'd say, by the way, did you reprint this yet or that? And, we were constantly reprinting, shipping, reprinting, shipping, reprinting, and uh, it was a, it was a tidy little enterprise. I wanna go back to my little grass shack in Kalakakuawa. I want to be with all the kindness and wahinas that I knew long ago. I can hear all guitars are playing on the beach at Ho-Ho-Na-Na. I can hear the Hawaiians say, Como mai no kaukaika It won't be long till my ship will be sailing back to Kona. A grand old place that's always fair to see. I'm just a little Hawaiian and a homesick island boy I want to go back to my fishing point I, I want to go, go back, back to my little grass shack In Kalakakua, Hawaii Where the humu humu nuku nuku apu I go swimming by Where the humu humu nuku nuku apu I go swimming by Be long till my ship will be sailing back to Kona. A grand old place that's always fair to see. I'm just a little Hawaiian and a homesick island boy. I want to go back to my fishing port. I want to go back to my little grass shack in Kalakakua, Hawaii. I go swimming by 
I have a question about marijuana specifically. Um, I've seen kind of mentions of the marijuana debate with uh, you and Kim Deitch on the pros yeah. and uh, Jay Lynch and Pete Poplowski right. on the, the cons. And I'd recently read a strip by Jay Lynch that he had written um, where he kind of went on a bit of a tangent about how he tried marijuana in the past, but it now it turned into this, you know, hippie drug and... You know, it was all political. And so right. just like reading that and then reading about how you, for the, I guess, one of the issues of Dope Comics, uh, but I guess it was originally like a jam you guys did together. So I'm curious kind of what that was like. What was the the next, you know, tell me about it. You mean the attitude in general toward pot? Not the attitude, but tell maybe that, but also like where that debate came from. Well, in this case, you got to remember, Jay Lynch and Pete Poplaski would have been absolute exceptions. It's not like uh, in that particular little mini-comic, uh, there were two hippies, uh, four and two against. <laughs> that was not representative. They were probably the only two people you could find who would make an argument against. Uh, Pete Poplaski never smoked in his life and uh, still hasn't. And Jay was just somebody who... Uh, for whatever reason, had bad experiences, uh, and but they both had a good sense of humor about it, and that was the important thing. There were a number of artists. Crumb, for example, uh, had stopped smoking and using drugs uh, early on, mm-hmm. and every time cartoonists would get together or fans, uh, someone was always pushing a joint on him, and he always had to say, no, none for me, no thanks, but people just assumed he was a stoner. Um but certainly you can't deny that uh, the vast majority of underground cartoonists imbibed, and some more regularly than others. Uh, <laughs> it certainly would have affected some of the stories, some of the humor. I think there are some of the uh, stories, especially early on, where it's almost assumed you're in an altered state when you read the story. Um, you don't have to be, but certainly uh, it helped. Uh, there are others that are more overtly even trippy, mm-hmm. you know. But, um, like a Rory Hayes? Yeah. And I would say, I mean, for my own part, my rule always was, you know, at work, we were straight because we had work to do. Mm-hmm. And then after work, um, that was recreation. And uh, the people who contributed stories to me, uh, I just assumed uh, pot was probably a regular part of their lifestyle, but there was never a witness test. Um, I suppose... Uh, you know, we could have had a, a <laughs> like today, you know, they have drug tests that can prohibit you from getting a job. Back then, it could have been the opposite. <laughs> You're too straight. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so I took advantage of it with some of the titles, like Dope Comics, obviously, mm-hmm. was uh, stories that one way or another involved uh, dope. But if you actually read those issues, um, Sometimes there were anti-drug stories. Uh, uh, I mean, I think there was one uh, uh, Belladonna, which is, you know, a pretty stupid thing to take, but if you had a bad experience, share it. Um, People who had good acid trips, bad acid trips, we would try to basically show that uh, uh, it's not necessarily wise to just pop a pill in your mouth. Um, And 
in that sense, there were probably, you could argue, an, an educational purpose <laughs> to these stories. Because uh, the, there were no rules. And yeah. uh, a lot of people who were young and just running away from home were taken advantage of in a lot of ways. And uh, uh, not everybody who had long hair, turns out, was a saint. There were a few uh, Mansons among the bunch. And uh, uh, so I think the cartoonists in many cases, had a, a cynical view toward the counterculture as well as uh, the larger culture that, of course, uh, we were up in arms against. Uh, kind of uh, completely changing gears. Um, I guess maybe it's kind of apropos time to be discussing it. Uh, on your publishing end, um, when you... Was it you that published... Um, Eisner's first graphic novel, Contract with God. Yeah. I mean, uh, technically, Baronet was uh, the company in New York that quickly went out of business, so then I took it over from Baronet. When um, when that came out, um, I'm curious about the anxieties, the interests, the expectations, um, kind of the understanding of what else was out there like that. Uh, someone was telling me she has a, an interview with Will the day he actually got the book um, and now just how like nervous he was of how it would come over, how people would right. you know, take this book, this comic, this graphic novel um, how would they respond to it so I guess tell me about that time and well I can anxieties. tell you when, when Will first told me he was working on this he was very secretive about it um, which he was in general with every new project, but when I actually saw it, I, I can't tell you how excited I was. I, I, I thought it was so great that, uh, A, that he was doing new work that wasn't spirit-related. It was kind of semi-autobiographical. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved the fact that it was square-bound in a way that we take for granted today, but you have to remember back then all comics were pamphlets, right? They are all stapled. And once in a while, you know, somebody would put together some collection, some best of you might find in a library. But, I mean, nothing new was coming out in the form of a respectable book. Uh, comics were not given that uh, respect. And when I saw it, I just automatically felt like, sounds corny, kind of a shiver going up the spine. It's like, wow, this is like, this is great. It would be wonderful if we could do more things like that. And, and of course, it did. It, it, it literally created a, a ripple that uh, now you see tremendous numbers of graphic novels coming out. But in 1978, um, uh, it was uh, revolutionary. And it, it affected everybody because uh, the whole underground generation saw that as the next logical uh, step. The uh, at that time, the people like Frank Miller, the young up-and-coming Marvel DC people, they were inspired by it. And some of Will's own contemporaries, like uh, Joe Kubert, Harvey Kurtzman, go down the list. Mm -hmm. Everyone thought uh, it was inspirational. Some moved more quicker in that direction than others, but the industry's never been the same since. And you got to remember that Will himself acknowledges that it was the undergrounds that opened his eyes up. So it was... Um, it was a symbiotic relationship, I think, uh, 
the best uh, artists of his generation. Uh, in particular, he and Harvey Kurtzman, who were the most in touch with uh, the new guys, well, and seeing how they influenced each other. So, uh, yeah, well, this is... Was this when they were both teaching at the SVA, the School of Visual Arts? I think it was before they were teaching. I think that came later. I think that was the 80s, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't swear to the timeline. Um, mm -hmm. Had Will been, had he seen some of the previous um, works? Um, like, I think, didn't Corbin have a, a graphic novel that came out? Yeah, it may have, but again, that was more of a, a, a collection of things. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a a book a unified of story. new material. If you look historically, you know, there was a thing that came out in, uh, I think around 1950, called uh, Rhymes with Lust, was it? Uh, but I think only eight copies are known to survive. It, 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 it just, <laughs> it was a bomb beyond bomb, so no one remembers it. It had no impact. And you could also look at uh, Harvey Kurtzman's Jungle Book in 1959, mm -hmm. which is actually parallel to Contract with God in, in, in remarkable respect in that it also was composed of four sections, basically four short stories, and it was square-bound, although it was one of those trashy paperbacks and awful paper from Ballantyne. The difference is that Harvey's uh, failed commercially and it had no impact in 1959, but um, you go ahead two decades later, and whether it was Will's work or it being a, a higher grade format or it was just the times, his did have an impact. And so we see his as revolutionary where we as we look at Harvey's as just uh, in a different light. I mean, I, I, I love them both. And, and uh, Jungle Book had an amazing impact on me when I was a kid. But... Uh, it certainly didn't uh, change the industry like Will's did. I was surprised that you actually still have copies of it, too, of the Jungle Book on really? your website. <laughs> I was going through it the other day, going through the books that you have for sale, just kind of like see what, you know. Um, yeah, there's actually there's uh, some kitchen sink product. Jungle Book is, is one of them that, yeah, there's still a, a case or two left, and we're slowly selling them. Um, so, yeah, pass the word. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope to do, uh, my partner John and I represent the uh, Kurtzman estate, and we hope to repackage Jungle Book and, hey, look at a number of things. Uh, we want to put together a, a Harvey Kurtzman library of five or six out-of-print things. So um, so hopefully that will be available in a different format and uh, not too far down the road. Is that part of the project you're doing with Boom? It's part of an ongoing process of organizing the Kurtzman Estates assets, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, growing up, were you a pretty avid collector of comics? Absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I grew up in rural Wisconsin, and uh, there were kids in the neighborhood I would trade with, uh, mostly boys, and the one thing I, I remember distinctly is we swapped a lot because, I mean, we all had small allowances. I used to get 50 cents a week at a time when comics were a dime, so I could buy maybe five comics a week new. But mm -hmm. where I really acquired comics was through trading, and I always tried to trade shrewdly because uh, the other boys my age 
valued the superheroes as as being the, the most desirable. And I, and I enjoyed Superman and Batman, but I also really like Little Lulu and Uncle Scrooge and Basil Wolverton and the oddball stuff and the horror comics. And So I could often get two for one, and I didn't mind trading a Superman for two Little Lulus or an Uncle Scrooge because they thought those were kind of girly comics and maybe their sister had bought them, whatever. And so I acquired, I think, a more diverse collection than a lot of my contemporaries. And the other thing was I tended to save mine, and I noticed they, generally speaking, kind of read them to death, trashed them, tossed them. Uh, they didn't have that collector instinct. So I remember being kind of different, but not really understanding mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the collector thing. You remember <laughs> the, the would be back in the 50s uh, when there were... There's no... Uh, no self-awareness that there were uh, other people around the country who might share that passion in any organized way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for the most part, the, the contemporaries I grew up with looked at comics as just uh, the same way you might the, the Sunday newspaper, which is you'd, you'd read it, and then when you were done, that was it. You traded for something you hadn't read before, you read that, and after a point, you know, why keep it? Whereas I like to stack them in my bedroom and, you know, alphabetize them. <laughs> I, was sort so of I guess it, it gave me a little bit of an advantage later on when I actually got into the business because I had an appreciation uh, for these things as artifacts. And I discovered some people that, uh, you know, later on I, I ended up having the, the privilege to know and to publish. So... I knew who Harvey Kurtzman or Basil Wolverton or Will Eisner or some, eventually Carl Barks. Um, when most people reading comics back then didn't really pay attention to the byline. Mm-hmm. I was quite. I, I was interested in the fact that you, uh, you know, in in the book mentioned talking to Dennis Kitchen about uh, his new book, the oddly compelling art of Dennis Kitchen. Um, you know, it's an art book of your work, but the one of the few images not by you um, is the Wolverton oh, yeah. drawing of of you, um, and, and I found that curious in that it seems stylistically probably the most influential. It seems to me, looking at your work, I think so. I mean, I wasn't consciously uh, so, but he certainly um, he was somebody I admired, and I think yeah, there's there's a uh, there's something going on there. Uh, Bud Plant, the 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 the, the famous uh, dealer who's been around forever, uh, I think in his uh, web store described my style as being a cross between Basil Wolverton and Ernie Bushmiller on acid, <laughs> which I I chuckled at. I I hadn't quite heard it described that way before, but I never consciously copied anyone. But I think those were two guys who had very clean styles, uh, humorous styles. I never pretended to draw in a more realistic style. I never emulated the superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's a good thing I didn't try copying anyone because usually that, I think, leads you down dead ends and it's best to uh, develop your own idiosyncratic uh, directions. But I don't mind the comparison. Um, one thing Basil and I both love to do is is noodle hair. <laughs> So a lot of the, uh, especially in the early work, I have 
guys with beards and it's like each you know it, it's like a string of noodles um that uh, it would have been much easier to have very quickly suggested a beard than to define each hair that's a little crazy mm-hmm. but it uh for better or worse was uh, one of those things uh, i did and uh he's the only, only other guy i know who's crazy enough to do that Maybe uh, Drew Friedman and his stippling. <laughs> well, that's uh, obviously another yeah example of OCD. Um, <laughs> yeah. I love the uh, the heavy use of Zipatone. I have to say, looking through the uh, page. Well, for better or worse, you know, the people who scan things hate Zipatone. It's mm-hmm. not compatible with scanners. So one of the things that was a little bit frustrating with this book is. Uh, a lot of the stuff with Zipatone, it's not quite as sharp as the original because they had to uh, slightly fuzz the Zipatone so it would turn gray because the individual dots could not stay sharp. Uh, there's a mathematical reason, you know, involving basically moray patterns, um, which we won't get into <laughs> now. But all I can say is. Um, that's a small frustration, and, and uh, it is what it is. But um, for younger listeners, even artists who may not even know who Zipatone is, it's, uh, you know, there used to be these sheets with a, a very light adhesive on the back, and you would cut them out with an exacto blade and place them on your art and then cut around them and burnish them down. And it was a process I had the patience to do. Um, most cartoonists used it a little bit, and some a fair amount. I tended to use it more, I think, uh, and, and I think in some cases, looking back, maybe overused it. Um, but it was a tool that was available, and back then we had no problem reproducing it. Uh, I used it in uh, the year 2000 on a story I did for Dark Horse uh, Anthology, the one called uh, My Five Minutes with God. Mm-hmm. So I actually pulled the Zipatone out of storage I hadn't used in a decade, and I use that to shade the story and I sent it to the art director at Dark Horse who's probably in his 20s and he called me and he said what is this a steel engraving <laughs> he, he, he literally didn't know what this was but he, uh, and it turned out that's when it was explained to me that it was not scan friendly and so he said never use this stuff again this is... <laughs> so, it, it's funny because I know people that that like hunt down Zipatone now yeah. Because the stores obviously don't care. Yeah, it. it's pretty rare. Yeah. I, I was at a comic convention. One guy uh, pulled out this stack of different Zipatones. And it's amazing the patterns you can yeah. get, like the detail, the weirdness. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. And it's, uh, well, you're, you're getting into a real arcane area now. I think you're... Yeah. Your your listeners are falling asleep, Robin. <laughs> oh, they're used to it. I'm yeah. uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm into the odd things. Uh, doing the book, does it make you want to revisit cartooning again? Yeah, actually, it has. It's inspired me. I, I've been drawing quite a bit lately, but mostly it's uh, it's what I call my chipboard sketches. Um, do you know what chipboard is? It's like the uh, in the bottom of a tablet. It's that uh, that coarse. Uh, cardstock and it's where you like take some of it off to yeah it's like an, an a, yeah. like a legal tablet or any kind of a writing tablet it's the the hard part at the bottom that you ignore 
I used to flip those over in meetings and draw on the back of the tablet on that chipboard with the Sharpie markers and a certain kind of ballpoint pen. And I, I did that for years during a lot of boring meetings, and I would save these. And um, I, I ended up just in the past couple of months uh, assembling a, a book that will be coming out this fall called uh, The Chipboard Sketchbook. And I noticed as I was putting it together, I began finding more chipboard and drawing on it. And I would say maybe 20% of this book is, is stuff that was done the last six months because I got excited about drawing again. Um, but it's very different than what you'll see in the oddly compelling book because mm -hmm. those are uh, largely uh, you know, comic stories and illustrations done with a brush and, uh, uh, as you said, <laughs> some zipatone. <laughs> <laughs> these, these are uh, different because uh, it's it's on this very coarse surface and it's done with coarse tools uh, and they're spontaneous. There there's no penciling ahead of time. There's no you can't white out and change it. It's I, I, I like the fact that it's a dangerous medium, and so I'm literally uh, creating it as I put the the, the, the pen to paper and it's uh, there's a. Uh, just a very spontaneous, uh, surreal quality to it, and I go back and I touch up with the finer point pen, and uh, you know, at the end, I, I go, I like this, I'm going to keep it, or I toss it. But I found about 150 of them that I was pleased enough with. Uh, actually, a couple hundred, I think, are. Uh, and uh, John Lind, who designed the oddly compelling book, uh, put it together with uh, Greg Sadowski, who. Uh, helped design the Underground Classics book. Mm -hmm. and, he's, uh, uh, he's fantastic. He also did the Greg Irons book. That's right. Yep. And uh, a whole bunch of different great stuff. Yeah, he's he's got an affinity for the Underground guys, I think. Uh, he's p part of our generation. Uh, so anyway, any readers who are, or, or any listeners, I should say, uh, who happen to like my stuff or curious can look for that. It'll be out in October. So Is that from... Drawn in or from uh, Dark Horse it's, as well? Uh, Boomtown is putting it out. Okay. Um, and beyond that, I'm not sure. I've got uh, uh, Monty Beauchamp just invited me to do a couple of pages in his next Blab World. So uh, I don't even know Blab was still happening. Um, it's new. It's called Blab World now. Okay. He's revitalizing it. So uh, I think he just assembled the first issue, and he invited me into the second I'm not even sure what the format is. Uh, he's sending me the first one when it's published. So, who do you know who's publishing that? Uh, you know, he didn't say. <laughs> um, I, I didn't think to ask. Yeah, it's a it's a roving series. Yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, originally he self-published, then Kitchen Sink did it, then Fanographics, and uh, I think uh, was it Chronicle did a collection. Mm -hmm. So he's bounced around. Yeah. Well, they're good. They're good books. I quite, yeah. I quite appreciate Mont them. Monty's a good guy. Do you find doing these drawings it's quite freeing? Because looking at your at the work and odd, oddly compelling, it's very detailed, very rendered, and very painstaking. Um, is that kind of yeah? Is it freeing for you? Is it what freeing? Freeing? Doing, yeah, the work you've been doing. Um, yeah, the stuff I described, this, the chipboard sketches, are freeing in the sense that uh, they're the opposite of the painstaking stuff. Uh, <laughs> they're still, you know, maybe nitpicky, but there's um, a complete...
complete spontaneity to it. I mean, I literally, uh, while people are talking in meetings and I should be taking notes, I'm, I'm drawing, or maybe the TV's on, I'm drawing, and uh, they take on a life of their own, and they're very strange, and uh, they entertain me. I usually, uh, when I'm done with them, I go, God, where did that come from? Because I had no idea. <laughs> it, it's completely springing from the subterranean somewhere. Excellent. And uh, so, I mean, uh, check it out. I can even get you a sneak preview if you're curious. I, I am. Um, I like. I, I I really enjoy that format where people are really immediate and really uh, doing it, just creating. Um, we have a lot of guys from Vancouver who di- who've done stuff like that, like Mark yeah. Bell, um, Ted Stern, uh, did Fuzz and Pluck, or does Fuzz and Pluck. Um, sent me some images they did back in the 90s of, he called them automatic drawings. It's really fascinating to see what you do when you just... I think automatic drawings, yeah, good name for it. Yeah. Yeah. You can borrow it, probably. Um, But it's really neat, because I mean, uh, to see an artist really, like, letting go, especially in comics, where you have, in a lot of ways, constraints of page and story. Um, But I mean, you are still an artist, so to create and be that that artist capacity to let that part of the brain really take over and play exactly. And if you uh, you'll recall the the earlier stuff in the oddly compelling book, uh, there is a number of paintings and drawings that are are really not comics at all. They're mm-hmm. they're kind of surreal paintings with a kind of a cartoon style. And I was torn between. Uh, what I would call the kind of Salvador Dali, Rene Magritte world, uh, and comics, and obviously went into comics, but I've never lost my fascination with the surreal art, because I I do think uh, exploring the subconscious is, uh, to me, a a valuable and uh, and fascinating area, and I never want to lose touch with that. Well, paint me excited. (laughs) Thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure, Rob. I love my man. I'm alive. Some say I don't. I love my man. I'm alive. I say I don't. But I'll quit my man I'm alive, I say I won't I've been your slave, baby Ever since I've been your babe I've been your slave Ever since I've been your babe But before I be your dog I'll see you in your grave My man wouldn't give me no breakfast Wouldn't give me no dinner Squawked about my supper Then he put me out door Having there to lay a matchbox on my clothes. I didn't have so many 
But I had a long, long ways to go Everything a good man needs. 